Hello, Annie Trenders. Welcome to the Girl Taku, hosted by the ladies of Anime Trending. We are back with another fun topic on the table. My name is Gracie, and I am joined by. Hello, I am Isabel, and. This is Agnes. So, without further ado, the Girl Taku today will be about anime that either encompasses historical elements or is an actual historical anime. Well, history, as we have seen, is pretty wild, to say the least. And personally, I've always been a big fan of history because I kind of see it like as a storybook of life as a whole. And so anime is no exception in that regard as well. So today we're going to actually examine anime that has either direct historical references or has managed to put a twist to history but still is able to portray it in a way that's exciting and on top of that relevant slash accurate in that regard and because of that i am also calling this uh this episode historical anime featuring agnes's history lessons because agnes is definitely the one in our group who has i would think the most knowledge on history because even someone like me that has like read wikipedia articles and for fun and stuff like that i can say that in our private chats with each other agnes's history is like boundless you know like the, she just knows that's a that's, lot that's a very high praise but i'll take it <laughs> thank you i mean you've taken history classes and stuff like that right yeah i'm a i was a history minor in college okay well see uh, that I explains it, a, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well i did it mostly to raise my grades but you know it was a lot of fun too <laughs> <laughs> you being a nerd and raising your grades good job <laughs> So yeah, so basically, um, I'm going to actually have you start us off today, Agnes. I have a feeling that you're going to be chiming in a lot as we talk about our things. So kind of want you to save your voice a bit. So especially since you have the Francis advance, uh, continuing adventure at the end of the episode. <laughs> so I'm we're going to have you yeah, we're gonna have let you talk first. And then we talk and you can sprinkle in your thoughts and your own little lessons and whatever little tidbits you want to add. And then at the end, you're talking all over again. So yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, all right. Uh, well, uh, yeah, so historical anime has always been something I find very interesting because there's actually not a lot of them on the internet. There's a lot of them that take influences from certain places, but they're not so widespread as a lot of the more mainstream anime like Sword Online and other things that you see on, on the internet that's more fantasy or, you know, world building based. Um, so for this episode, I just want to highlight a couple of them that I really, really liked. I did read a lot of historical manga also growing up as well. So I apologize if I miss out on highlighting these other shows because I didn't actually watch them. I just read the manga. So for this episode, the, I would say golden, I was going to say golden kamui, but I didn't talk too much about golden kamui. So I'm putting that <laughs> off to the side. It will just be, it'll just end up becoming an episode about golden kamui and why it's great. And that will be, a separate episode on its own. So for today, I'm going to highlight uh, Freight Grand Order, uh, the Babylonia Battlefront uh, anime. Um, or if those who aren't kind of aware of how that premise goes, you could also watch Drifters as well, which has a very similar premise of kind of like big figures from history being kind of isekai'd into another world. And I think that's a very, very interesting twist as opposed to normal human beings being isekai to another world. So that's what, that's my first pick. <laughs> I would say is Fate, Babylonia, Grand Order, or, uh, Drifters. Those are like top two contenders because those, that's a, a very, it hits a very soft spot for me in terms of historical figures and the way that the story kind of weaves around them to give together a very creative narrative story. Well, so what is it about Drifters and a Fake Grand Order Babylonia that you like in their portrayals of historical figures and how they were utilized and, you know, stuff like that? Drifters is very interesting because, well, first of all, it's written by the same author who wrote Helsing. So that is already oh, very like, okay. oh my god, like, you know, where could you take this story? The author of Helsing is absolutely wild. Um, but the story itself is very interesting. So you have a lot of these historical figures after they die, they are whisked away into quote unquote like an afterlife and they're given a chance to kind of be reborn, but they're kind of teleported against their own will into this dark fantasy setting where they have to help out these fantasy creatures like elves and dwarves and stuff that live in the area to fight against some 
unholy dark being that's on the other side of the country. And our, the heroes that are spotlighted in Drifters are three Japanese heroes. One is from the, um, uh, from the Genpei Wars. One is Oro Nobunaga. And the other one is, uh, I think he is, he's past Obunaga's time. And what's really interesting is that as those three, they form kind of like an interesting trifecta of a group that fight with each other. But they also pass a lot of historical quips across each other. The one that's from the Genpei Wars, they like to tease a lot that he's the oldest of the group because he transcends far, far, far back. And they talk about how... Uh, and then because the other main character is closer to Oda Nobunaga in terms of age differences, they talk a lot about the clans and things that have changed throughout history. And they also like to make jabs at each other about how Oda is like really stupid and really crazy. And there's also a lot of other characters, like Roman characters and cowboy Western characters that get together, but they have a language barrier so they don't actually understand each other but they're just yelling at each other to try to fight and co- and coordinate with one another it's very much of a mess but it's very entertaining to watch in drifters did you know any of these historical figures beforehand i watched drifters as well and i obviously knew about oda nobunaga he's just oda nobunaga is such an iconic historical he's absolutely iconic yeah, yeah also very bisexual by the way in case nobody knew about it he that right, is a yeah. very openly bisexual chaotic man so um yeah. but yeah um i was curious if you knew about the other characters because i watched drifters for the same reason i love history and seeing historical characters from or actual historical figures from different time periods having to work together and you know, communicate in a way that's really different from each other. I thought it was really funny and also, you know, really intriguing. But I definitely didn't recognize any of the other main characters in the trio. I just knew Nobunaga. And because Nobunaga is just such a famous historical character. So mm-hmm. I recognize a lot of them just based off of name association themselves. So the head of their quote unquote, like resistance group that fights against the big dark evil guy at the end whom i will not spoil because he's already very famous so that's for you if you want to watch the anime read the manga the guy that takes care of the resistance group is abe no seme who is in japan is actually lauded as one of the greatest uh what would you call it um omnyogist somebody who practices omnyoji right and so i remember that from just briefly watching through a lot of other anime or reading a lot through other texts and thinking to myself like wow that's actually a pretty key person to put in there just because he has so much political power and sway from the time period that he came from into this world where there's a desperate need of organization um, of troops of food of ammunition and of new ideas as well and he utilizes the strength of the drifters as people who were of different time periods to kind of pull them together and use their best abilities to fight against the big bad evil on the other side of the continent. Um, and then as for the other characters, I recognize the cowboys in there. I don't remember if it was a uh, kid. Uh, no, kid is featured. In yes, there. yes, kid, he the is. cowboy mm-hmm. is featured. And there's one other one I don't remember. And then there was a um, a Roman general. Who was it? I don't remember what his name was now because it's been so long. Drifters came out what, 2011 Roman, or 12? I think. Is he Hannibal? Yeah, it's Hannibal. Yeah, that's right. It's Hannibal. Oh, I remember and that. Hannibal. Like, oh, no, he's, Hannibal's not Roman. We're not Hannibal's talking not about Roman. the serial killer Hannibal. <laughs> Just an FYI. <laughs> yeah, it's. Oh, it's um. Let me let me double check real quick. I think his full name is Hannibal Barca or something like that. Yeah, but Hannibal's not Roman. That's the thing. He has another oh, guy that's okay. with him. This really senile Roman guy. That likes to talk about grapes and wine and stuff. And Hannibal's like, what the hell are you talking about, old man? Oh, I think I know which one. I, I just went to Google. Um, is it Cornelius? Cornelius? Yeah, it's Cornelius. S-C-I-P-I-O. I cannot pronounce that name. Scipio? <laughs> Cornelius Scipio. Oh, Scipio. That's kind of a cute yeah. name, actually. <laughs> okay. I mean, your name is Scorpio, so it's close enough. <laughs> <laughs> Cornelius Scipio. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Those are the two that act like a married old couple because of the way they. Yeah, they're really <laughs> funny. I love watching them. But yeah, like that's the one thing I like about watching Drifters is all these interactions. They're not possible in any historical sense whatsoever, but it really adds to the characters, the each of the characters' own base stories 
as if a what if situation happened if with X, Y, and Z character meet? What would they talk about? How would they interact? Would they work well together? You know, and FGO Babylonia Battlefront operates in the same manner where there's a lot of historical figures that come into play. So this is a spoilers for uh, FGO. In the halfway mark of season one, you discover that the current big bad of season of like that midway point is Medusa. She's the um the snakehead woman that can petrify people's gazes and is only defeated by Jason from I believe the the fleet of Argonauts with the mirror, right? Yes. Uh, because he can turn her to stone. But in this one, she's basically reincarnated, and Medusa is augmented with the nobility of becoming basically the figment of a goddess. So she's even ten times more scary. And in the show, there's one scene where she faces off against Spartacus. Now, in Fate Grand Order, most people do not know the identity of people who are isekai in this universe or people who are reincarnated as servants and so they go by uh, uh, a titular name based on what class they belong to avenger is her fake name that is the title that she's given and that's all that they know of and then it isn't until one of the other characters spartacus realizes who she is and she unleashes her petrification powers does he does he say like i know who you are you are medusa you are the one creature in greek history that we all fear but i will not fear you because i am the son of Ares, and i have been gifted by uh i've been blessed by zeus and at that point you're just kind of like wow this is kind of cool you know all these interesting historical elements coming together of like big supernatural beings and humans from all different points of history just coming together and trying to defeat an even greater evil that transcends past uh, human history. And I think that's why I got really hooked into playing Fate Grand Order in the first place was how creative the direction goes for a lot of these cast members, even if it's silly or if it's something non-realistic, it's still very interesting. And Babylonia actually was lauded as one of the best written arcs by Kinoko Nasu himself when people were playing the game. And so seeing it in anime format was even more of a treat because you get the visuals, the sound effects, and all the animation sequences is gorgeous. Uh, remind me, this is one of the newer Fate Ground anime, right? Or what do you mean by newer? Uh, I because I, I don't know the timeline of things. Oh, I'm not one of the watchers. Um, <laughs> anything from Fate Grand Order is not re- necessarily related to anything like Fate Stay Night and Fate Zero, which is older. Yes, it's not related for a very short simplification because Fate is another bag of things I don't want to touch right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, and Isabel, I know you've also touched this franchise before, so I'm kind of curious, like, have you, did you watch that one? Since I know there's so many in, within the franchise itself. <laughs> yeah, I actually never got a chance. So, like, I'm a fan of the older series that we are not going to touch mm. upon, but I I can see how those interactions kind of probably go into Fate Grand Order and a, any other series that ca- have come past. And it's really just the characters, I feel like. It doesn't matter which rendition of them, because in the Fate series themselves, you know, each each uh, each part, you know, the, a different character plays the hero, right? So yeah, it just it just it just makes for I feel like more interesting plotline because you know that hero is set in history, uh, like you know wh- whoever may be like the king or something like that, and just having these like legendary heroes um, fighting each other or maybe even be the villain, right? And it makes you wonder: Is this person going to be the villain this time? How are they going to act? Oh, the, this person right. like a hero this yeah. time? Like how are they going to act? Right? And then even though you see Saber so many times, right? But I just want to know what t- type of Saber Saber is going to be or h- how she's going to, you know, um, interact with her master or something like that. So Yeah, all the Saber renditions are different because you have like Nero, you have like King Arthur, you have Knights of the Round Table, you have all sorts of people who qualify as Saber, but they all have different pasts, they all have different backgrounds that really add to the story an interesting thing because you brought up to isabel was talking about how you have different renditions of the same person and one thing that really comes to mind really clearly because i remember playing this in the game itself is the hundred years arc based on the actual hundred years war in uh between france and england and they spotlight Jeanne of arc and then we all know who Jeanne of arc is Jeanne of arc is the savior of france she uh she kicked out the english out of france and she brought the king and helped him be crowned in unifying France as a whole. But unfortunately, she was, you know, 
martyred. She was burned at the stake for being a witch. And she was very young, by the way. I don't think a lot. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize just how young she actually was. She was very young. Yeah, she was like in her teens, very early adulthood. Um, But what's really interesting about Fate Grand Order is they definitely took the Jeanne of Arc concept because Jeanne of Arc actually does exist in other Fate iterations. But they also brought about a Jeanne of Arc altar, which is an alternative ego of the the existing Jeanne of Arc that basically defies all of her beliefs and scorns the people who had burned her. She scorns humanity and the god who had forsaken her. And so that becomes a really interesting twist on the actual Joan of Arc who did it all in the name of God. And these two actually do interact within the story itself. So that becomes really interesting to watch and unfold and see how they develop Joan of Arc through these two personalities. That's actually a good leeway into a question that I've been thinking about that I was going to ask no matter what. But, you know, these sort of anime uh, and games and overall series, they tend to utilize a lot of religious characters and they do stuff like gender bend them and obviously different character designs and, you know, give them different roles and personalities and stuff like that. And it actually really reminds me of how the main antagonist in Drifters. I have a very clear feeling of who that main antagonist is representing. And so but there's also a thought of me that's like, you know, do people find that insulting with the way they've taken these characters that many to this day still consider to be worshipped, to be worshipped, to be angels, to be saints, and not some, not just like, not just something like Greek mythology where you can play and turn around and like you know play around with the characters and stuff like that. And uh, and you know I, I'll just say on record right now I'm not particularly affiliated with any religion, and I know that Isabel has spoken before in a prior episode that she is Buddhist. So you know Agnes, knowing the religion that you uh, practice under, I'm just sort of curious on how you feel about these twists to these religious and historical characters in anime. I actually have less of a bias towards them. Like, I don't have any feelings towards people who twist the identity of these certain characters. One, because I think Japan is not exactly religious in a sense Mm -hmm. and so a a vast majority of their audience is not really going to care that they take a a religious figure and they're going to twist it to however it suits them because you know oh it's just an interesting concept they're not going to think much about it so i kind of just hand wave that and think like whatever um but in the larger grand scheme of things when it comes to religious figures I really don't like to touch them. I don't really like to consider it at the same time because that gets an iffy topic with other people, but I personally don't mind. History is interesting because there are facts, but facts are always going to continue to change over time when there's new evidence that comes up anyway. So you can't just staunchly say like X, Y, and Z is the way that they are because of X, because of ABC. You really don't know that until you read records, you do archaeological evidence, or you read like first-hand accounts on actually understanding who these people are and why they are the way that they are. And sometimes even just having those pieces still isn't enough to form the full picture, you know, because that's what... Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. and I think that's what makes history so fascinating is is unfortunately there's a part of history that we will never know completely because we can't know, you know, we can't go back in time and see it with our own eyes and stuff like that. So yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. For more recent history, like modern history, I guess like 1800s and onwards when history as a subject becomes a lot more codified and there's a lot more things to investigate and there's a lot more um, person, there's a lot more firsthand evidence, you know, uh, diaries, records, movies, films, things like that, that are there to see, then yes, everything does become a little bit more rigid, a little bit more structurized. But everything before that, it's so hard to tell what is the truth and what isn't the truth. Mm, okay. Yeah, thank you for that. Because I mean, obviously, as me not being associated with a religion, I don't particularly mind when that happens. But I do just can't help but sort of wonder about it since, you know, I am also aware, you know, coming from China, which is also extremely, extremely not religious. I I could definitely see Chinese people doing the same thing with these historical characters that are also tied to Christianity and a particular religion. So I was just really curious as someone, um, you know, on your thoughts in that regard. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I Like I said, I don't have any attachments mainly because I don't strongly identify with my 
family's current religion either. I see it more of a historic, I see it through in a more historical lens. Like, for instance, if you're studying Western history, you can't study Western history without learning about uh, Western religion, or you can't really study Eastern, like, uh, let's say, like Middle Eastern history without understanding the context of Islam. Right, right, right. And while mm-hmm. a lot of these religious uh, sex actually play a big part of political power, control, and really bring the masses together under a single rule. So you can't distinguish the two, say, secular and church. You cannot study both. You have to study both. There's no <laughs> way around it. Makes sense. All right. Religion is a very powerful thing in history. Oh, yeah, for <laughs> sure. For sure. Without question. All right, so do you have any other anime you want to spotlight minus Golden Cowboy that we could probably talk an hour for? (laughs) (laughs) I want to say uh, probably this is a little fun highlight for me because there's so much historical anime you can watch on the there's there's a good amount that you can watch on the internet but i think the one that really solidified me into thinking like wow history can actually be told through an anime medium is actually italia Oh! Back 2013, <laughs> we little Agnes in middle school being like, wow, history in five minute bites. This is amazing. <laughs> Your young Agnes voice. <laughs> wow. Wow's at ors, OTL. <laughs> okay, anyway. Um, with, Hit- with Italia, you know, it's one of those grand awakenings on Tumblr as well. It's oh my gosh, time, it is. It period. is. Wow. Talk about, talk about a throwback right now. Yeah, I mean, we there was a there was a recent uh, social media throwback with Italia, right? Of somebody um, on Funimation. What was it? We, we all saw it, right? I think it was Yen Press, maybe. But uh, yeah, uh, Yen I, Press. It was Yen Press. Yeah. They literally called out on the user being like, "Oh, we know what you watched in 2013." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just but, saying, yeah. a lot of people watch that and actually passed their exams without studying. So. Yeah, exactly. Like Italia, Italia is stupid because it's such. It's such a Japanese thing to do. It's taking history, like a very boring subject, and then making it educational. Japan is really good about doing that with anime in general, about educating people through their anime medium. So people just latched onto Hitalia uh, so early on when it was being released for like the first uh, season or so. Mm -hmm. Also, a fun fact, apparently some Japanese people were initially kind of unhappy about Hitalia because there was a segment about Japan and in which they were like, China raised Japan and then Japan learned the Chinese language and then changed it into their own, you know, with kanji and their own system and stuff. And there was like a joke where the uh, where the China character was like, oh, no, you're writing it all wrong, you know, sort of thing. (laughs) uh, People in Japan actually got upset at that because they just didn't like the idea that you know their that's language just, that's just people being ignorant yeah <laughs> that's just people being ignorant They're like yeah we all know that yeah exactly it's like they don't like the idea of their language and potentially like the beginnings of their culture being quote-unquote raised metaphorically or in other words stemming from an older civilization and culture and so it so it actually got some people in japan upset which i thought was really interesting so i just find it really stupid because even the english language and other and many other languages itself stem from something much much older either you're quoting from indo-european you're quoting from sanskrit or any other languages really we all come from somewhere. We all rip it off from somebody else. We all spread out as diaspora groups and change the language as we see fit in the current country that we live in. So you can't get mad about it. I just find it very foolish. And that's one of the, I guess, egocentric things about Japan. But that's that's another topic for another day. <laughs> you're, you're treading on dangerous territory now. <laughs> I don't care. I t- you know, I took a Japanese history class where we talked about a lot of Japan's war crimes and things like that. And the very difficult situation that Japan was in the uh, in the 19th century, the 20th century. So I'm not afraid about talking about this. I am not afraid. And I, I feel that a lot of the majority of the world understands this as well, that no country is perfect. Right, right, of course. Right. So we can all agree that we've watched Hitalia and it helped yes. us pass <laughs> right? Like... <laughs> I didn't pass exams. I just found it really funny, especially with the relationship between Italy and Germany. Of course, of course. <laughs> Italy, Italy is an absolute mess of an organization. Like it cannot get its shit together. 
I mean, I like, think actually, truly. I think Italy really was a mess during that time too. Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, my dad, my dad, who was actually probably my biggest inspirations for studying history in the first place, because he was the one that really imbued it onto me. He told me uh, because he's from Europe, he's French, so he knows all of World War One, World War Two history, and he told me that the only time Italian trains ran on time was during Nazi occupation. Oh. Um, <laughs> and so that so that's like kind of like a weird funny history quip that I like to tell people of how like the Italians are an absolute mess at organization. And the only time that they actually have their trains run on time is because when they were allies with Germany, everything ran very strictly. So I thought that was just very funny. Maybe it's a bit of a dark humor, but it is I think very interesting how history changes slightly in that context. Oh yeah, for sure. So seeing that reflect in Italia of Italy kind of being like a bumbling fool and not really knowing what to do and Germany has to clean up his messes, it's pretty reflective of World War II, honestly. A little sad, too. <laughs> I, well, it's the, it is what it is. Yeah, you're right. It, history is what it is. Whether it's funny, it's sad, or it's ridiculous, or whatever, it's happened. So, Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, um, that is your spotlights for historical anime stuff. So I'm going to go ahead and leap into mine. I had several choices, actually. It was kind of a thing that I had to like, I don't know. It was kind of hard choosing the ones I want to talk about because there are, I easily had four that I would totally be down to talking about, but I ultimately decided to go with these. And so these two. So the first one I picked is 8686, which is actually currently mm. airing right now. This is also a fantasy slash sci-fi anime. It does not take place on Earth. The countries are their own countries. Uh, they have different cultures and they have their own language, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the reason or not, I think the reason why I chose 8686 is the amount of really, really rich historical context and historical elements it embedded into the story for so uh, for people who aren't aware of the synopsis basically in this country called San Magnolia they have they discriminate against a group of people who aren't albas and albas all look the same they are white they have silver hair they have silver eyes think marble is how I like to view them. They they look very marbleized per se. And anyone else are, you know, put into camps and they are and they get sent into these units that have to fight in this war against this AI encroaching enemy. It sounds very far fetched, but, you know, bear with me here. And so immediately I could tell where some of the inspirations are. Obviously, people immediately thought World War II because of the camps and stuff like that. But I think I think that tends to be people's first mindset because the Holocaust was something deadly and awful and one of the most inhumane things that's ever happened in regards to camps. But I think also people forget about the internment camps here at U.S., and they also forget about, you know, stuff like the Vietnam War in the U.S. where they drafted men who were mostly people of color and who were young and force shipped them off to fight for a country that was inherently coded to discriminate against them, which was exactly what the San Magnolia country is doing. They are, you know, using these people that they themselves discriminate to fight a war for them behind the lines. And so I think it's just fascinating in the way that so many historical events could apply and just be a, and the, how this anime is essentially a direct reflection of that history and so it's like another thing that has happened as well that people have not me but like people online seen that that has pointed out in what they thought of is okay major spoilers for people who have not seen the first core but uh the main characters uh, who are in the spearhead unit which are people labeled as 86 which is where the name comes from aka they are not albas who were in the camps they did manage to escape to another country uh, a republic and within the republic there are actually albas who live there but culturally they act completely different from the albas that live in san magnolia which is the or or original country because these albas in the republic they are immigrants they are or they are descended from immigrants their families immigrated from san magnolia to another country 
And they are, you know, kind of like, you know, putting it into sort of my personal experience, you know, like an Asian American, you know, your family comes from immigrated from another country and uh, you are you're obviously like them, but you are also raised in a country with a different culture. And I really love the way that 86 actually portrays that because if you put like the Sam Magnolia's Albas and the Republic's Albas side by side, they look exactly the same, except they're completely not. The way that their body language is, the way that their clothing are, the way that they talk to each other and stuff, because even if they are officially Albas, in another country, they are also not really the Albas because the culture that they grew up and raised in are completely different from the Albas of San Magnolia. And I thought it was also a good way to sort of show the difference between immigrant families and, you know, the difference between people who are, you know, grew up in the very country that they originally, the ethnic groups originally populated. Because at least I definitely saw, you know, the Chinese Americans within the Albas who are in uh, who are in the Republic, and then the Chinese citizens who are in Alba of San Magnolia. There is a clear distinction in the way we speak, in the way we talk, in the way we think, and so I really like that element as well. I think it just it just added something very personal for me. But the thing, another thing I did want to highlight, and it was actually you, Agnes, who told me about this. So chime in when we get there. When, when oh. we get there. <laughs> but you told me how something you really liked in 8686 was Albas, they are safe behind a computer screen and they are far from the battlefield. And the 86 people, they have to fight on the battlefield themselves. And there's this sort of detachment because they're connected via this long-term communications device. It's not the cell phone or the telephone. It's something else. It is, you know, specifically to that fantasy slash sci-fi world. But there is this detachment to human lives because all the Albas ever see are blinking icons on the screens. And when one of the unit members die, they just disappear off the map and they only see not even a real name, but a code name. Right. I kind of think of it like a game, like just like the way that they're displaying it. It it feels like they're playing a game instead of actually, you know, using real people. Yes, exactly. And the way that, and like the closest thing to a personal connection there is, is their voice. And Agnes, you said that this reminded you of World War One, I, I think specifically, which is when they started to use mm. long distance communications. Is that it, or is it wasn't it another war? Yeah, no, no, that 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 was the that was the right context. I was trying to remember because I said a lot to you about eighty six. I was like, what did I tell you? Because <laughs> um, I remember I was watching it and I was like simulcasting it and uh, simulcasting my thoughts to you in the group chat. But yes, I do remember that comment. So in World War One was officially the time period when they started using long term communication instead of sending couriers to the battlefield um, to relay messages between generals or troops or use, let's say, um, horns or other musical instruments to signify the way that troops need to change their position, they now had telephones or um, rudimentary telephones that would be connected from one base to another or one location to another. And the fact that a lot of the commanders in World War One actually sat in very comfortable positions back in the capital or a little bit further from the battlefield where they actually don't feel the brunt of a lot of the force and they're simply relaying orders to people who are actually on the battlefield to tell them to change positions based on how they see it on the on their paper maps but unfortunately there's a huge disconnect one because you know the the commanders are nobility so there's already a widening chasm between the nobility and the um the people who were drafted into these wars but also too that these commanders are so very content of sitting in their seats and never really moving or understanding what people had to go through on the battlefield, which is very much like how 86 presents it, where the of uh, the Albus, all they just do is they sit there and they just listen. They sit there and they listen and they convey orders. Some of them do end up going crazy because they hear people die on screen, uh, they, or on voice call, I guess, is the more <laughs> accurate way of saying it. Um, they hear people die on voice and then they go a little bit crazy because they don't really understand what's going on. They just see things disappear here. They don't see the collateral damage, buildings falling apart, people dying. They just hear things. And then, boop, that's it. The blinker stops, and then that's the end of it. It's very uh, desensitized. And that's how a lot of the people in World War One were like, especially the nobility who had full faith that World War One was only going to last for three to six months. Oh my gosh, wait, really? 
yeah, a lot of that's why uh, a lot of people coming out of World War One were really disillusioned because they thought World War One was going to end quickly. Oh, World War One, no. yeah, no. <laughs> World War One technically started, or it was a culmination of a lot of things in World War One. But one of the biggest reasons was the assassination of uh, the uh, the Austrian Duke by the Black Hand in uh, Serbia, right? And all these countries are pulled in together, and then people were just like, oh, you know, it's just a little spat between smaller uh, Eastern European countries. It's not that big of a deal. I remember someone... It is a huge big deal. Someone <laughs> once described World War One as a family feud because a lot of the royal nobilities are, you know, genetically related yes. to each other. <laughs> and... Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a family feud also because a lot of these countries have withstanding agreements between one of each other like russia's allied with another country england's allied with another country and they're all dragged into this petty little conflict because they owe their allegiance to aiding their country of need so that's why it became a much bigger war and became known as a grand war rather than just you know a small skirmish at a an an eastern european country right yeah, so that was another part that, you know, thank you, Agnes, for jumping in, that I yeah. thought you, like, I did, I, it did hit me because of the way you talked about it, and especially, I think, to this day, World War One, when you put it into ratio of the population of the world at that time, was still one of the most destructive wars in history, and I think if you put it into just people who died on the battlefield, like with numbers and percentages, I think it actually overtook World War II from what I remember in my history class that I took back in high school. It could very theoretically have taken over numbers from World War II because uh, a lot of the European countries were also colonized countries, Mm. colonizers. So they dragged a lot of their colonized countries into the war itself. So there's also, there's, there's a lot of records and photographs of ethnic people from other countries. Like, you know, Ottoman Empire is part of it. So the Middle East are also part of the bigger conflict as well. And Chinese people as well, because the Chinese people were under the English yoke and lots of other ethnicities were under their power and forced to fight in this war that they don't want to be part of but they're part of it anyway because they're colonized. Oh gosh, that that that's terrible. Oh god. Yeah. <laughs> like that's So terrible. then when you think about it in the bigger scope as compared to world although World War 2 is equally devastating in its own measures, it's much more contained because it's not because at that point you're not uh there was a an agreement I think in the Geneva agreement that you can no longer become a colonizer. Oh, thank god. Colonize- <laughs> Yeah, so by World War II, there's a reason why a lot of these countries no longer had um, land for colonizing. And so a lot of the colonized people from other countries were actually not involved so much in World War II, unless you were um, uh, a country that was specifically allied to uh, one of the colonizers. But other than that, they were mostly left alone during World War II until, you know, uh, Europe ended up bringing over its uh, its politics and its war over to the eastern asian front right <sighs> okay yeah so that's my first anime that i want to highlight <laughs> which shows it's like a gr- it's a great it's a great uh contrast the author behind 86 really did her homework oh yeah, yeah, yeah she really sure. pulled in mm-hmm. all of that historical weight into making something realistic i find it very surprising how a lot of people like to lambast on 86 saying like it's not realistic or it's not really that important like oh war is war blah 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 but then the real question is how far have you looked deeply into it to say such things like that i mean some people like to turn their heads away to history they don't find it interesting because it's in the past and they think that humans have that's just ignorance (laughs) (laughs) straight up that's just ignorance i think it's a very ignorant of people to ignore history well, I am in agreement with you, so we are <laughs> we are on the same page. <laughs> Headshake moment. <laughs> All right. So my second anime that I picked is kind of similar to Drifters, but in a more lighthearted sense. It's uh, Bungo Stray Dogs. Ah, <laughs> um, oh, Bungo Stray. Oh gosh, I have I have qualms of Bungo Stray Dogs, but it's very creative. <laughs> I will give it. I, I I do want to credit it though because I admittedly don't know a lot about the famous Japanese authors and famous Japanese literature, mm. and so because of Bungo Stray Dogs, I went back and I researched a lot of the actual historical people that the characters' names are based right off of, and. A lot of the context 
since like rewatching like you know the first season's clips make a lot more sense now now that i understand like the author's lives and you know the sort of effect they have like for example uh well okay this is dark humor fyi so i totally get if people do not like this humor and do not appreciate it but Dazai's constant like desire to kill himself and do it with a beautiful woman is because the author literally drowned himself with his lover in the river, which is exactly how we meet him. And then and so but the but the other thing that I really like is how Akutagawa, the um the uh sort of the foil to Atsushi, he not sort of, he is. <laughs> the foil to Atsushi. <laughs> a very direct foil. <laughs> He's kind of like idolizes da- Dazai and like in a way a bit obsessed with his past mentor and wants Dazai to recognize him and stuff. But a fun fact is in history, it was actually the other way around. Akutagawa existed as an author first and then it was Dazai and Dazai really, really, really looked up to Akutagawa and his works and his literature and stuff like that. And so that was another uh, one that I thought was like a funny twist and it put things into perspective. I do want to say, though, I the one thing that did upset me about Google Stray Dogs in just regards to the author characters is how they portrayed uh, Mar- uh, Marie Louise Alcott, who is famous for writing Little Women, because that woman is an absolute badass and a headstrong woman in the U.S. and you know one of the most iconic U.S. female authors in history. And they portrayed her as just bookish and kind of timid and shy. So I was not happy <laughs> about that. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, uh, I don't think they have a very f- or the author who did Boom the Stradalux doesn't really have a firm grasp of female literaries from the West. Because mm. even when I was looking at uh, who's the one that wrote Gone with the Wild, because she's featured in the first half, uh, the second half of Boom the Stradalux, the one with the parasol. Oh, do you mean Gone with the Wind? Margaret Mitchell? Yeah. Yeah, Margaret Mitchell. They didn't really portray her that well anyway, even as a character. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like their their understanding of female literaries in the West is a little bit more limited compared to the bigger male literaries like <laughs> Fitzgerald. <laughs> right, the right. epitome of money. I love it. He's the epitome of money. Uh, he's such a greedy bastard. I love it. <laughs> and he's voiced by Takahiro Sakurai Sauce. So. <laughs> uh, yes, of course, yes. Um, but yeah, Bungo Stray Dogs is very interesting. Plot-wise, meanders a little bit, but uh, very creative with the powers, the superpowers, and linking the characters' personalities and backstories to their real-life characters. Right. Oh, and one last note I do want to say is... Uh, to feature one of the characters is Tanizaki, who is sort of the sane guy of the group, <laughs> um, and he uh, and he is uh, friends with uh, Atsushi, or he's closest friends with Atsushi. He is based on Tanizaki, an author, but um, the, you'll notice that he has he's constantly surrounded by two girls, one of which is his younger sister Naomi, and the other one I forgot her name, but she has brown hair and she has glasses. And she looks a oh, lot more plain. Huh? The secretary, right? Yeah, the yeah, secretary yeah, yeah. of um, the president. Yeah. yeah, so she looks a lot more plain. Those are actual characters drawn from Tanizaki, actual author, Tanizaki Sensei's work. Uh, he um, he lived during an era where Japan Japanese culture was shifting, particularly for women. Women were starting to go into the workforce. They were gaining independence. And younger women in particular were starting to flaunt their sexuality. They were flaunting their oh, and so that's interesting. Yeah. And his work is really famous. And actually, a lot of young women in his time really loved his work. Um, his ma- most famous work, I forgot his, I forgot the name. It's something Snow. It, it's his ability. But uh, essentially what happened in that work is this man has this very sexist and idealized version of the woman that he wants that's like the new modern woman. And her name is Naomi. She is, you know, sweet and demure and a- incessantly loyal she does everything for this guy and she wants to do everything for him. And she's a teenager. Of course she is. And on top of that, she's this great beauty. 
But as the book goes on, the Naomi, the character, she slowly is manipulating her way into power and dominance in their relationship. And by the end, she was the one who holds the keys to the room and not him, which signifies like sort of that shift in power between this man who has a very outdated view of women and the new woman who is taking advantage of this outdated view to make a world and make more power for themselves. It was it's an extraordinary piece of work. It's hard to translate, obviously. I mean, I can say that as a someone who's bilingual in Chinese and English that I translating languages from any sort to one another is already difficult, but the Asian language as a whole is just so different from the Western language, the Latin-based language, that there's just so many things in context that you can't, you just properly cannot convey over. And so that's why, like, you know, if you want to read the translated books, please do so. But I can, like, I read the translated version. I can tell that something was kind of missing there. But it, it was really just a fascinating prose, like, story but also a look at the complexity of how culture is changing between the dynamics of, you know, relationship, heterosexual, obviously, (laughs) in this case, but, you know, heterosexual relationships and women in their place and, like, you know, how they feel about themselves in society. And Naomi and Bugo's stray dogs is his younger sister who is who constantly has him wrapped around her finger and she does things and she teases him, but she has the look of the cutesy, innocent girl, you know, with the, he, uh, with the, uh, uh, he uh, you know, hairstyle with the bangs and she's always wearing like a school uniform and, you know, she's like deathly loyal to him and stuff like that. And so it's like, and so I, that was like another little tidbit that, just made it a lot more interesting to me once I did some research on it. And so, yeah, basically in Bugo Stray Dogs, you guys should totally research the authors that the characters are based off of in their lives. I promise you they're really interesting. And a lot of them are authors during like cultural upheavals and cultural changes, which makes the whole context of things a lot, you know, a lot more intriguing. Yeah, I really like Bugo Stray Dogs too. Like, the fact that, you know, these with these authors and then their like abilities with their novels themselves, it actually made me want to read them too. So it's I feel like it's a great way for people to just watch the show and then be curious about it and actually go read the novels and find mm. out more about these authors as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I definitely think that as well because I was talking to uh, a couple of mutuals on the internet. They also agreed that the anime tends to have like a, a weird spotlight on certain characters and the story isn't that good, but actually reading the novels and understanding the context of all the authors being mentioned is provides a much bigger picture right. of the overall <laughs> plot in Bungo. Yeah. Because Bungo plays out as a very like stereotypical shonen and there's a couple story beats that are kind of repeated throughout that get really boring fast. And um, you also see that in other anime shows as well. So I can see why the anime appeal isn't as big but reading the light novel and having the context actually brings out a bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, you guys should definitely read the, uh, definitely read the characters and like, uh, like read the characters backstories as in not the anime context, but like actual (laughs) historical ones and their powers also make a lot more sense as well. Like, uh, like my last one, because I know we're like running close on time and Isabel still has to go. So, Okay. Um, I, my last one is Mori, who is the, uh, you know, Port Mafia leader. He has his character is literally uh, his power is literally a character named Elise and it's called the dancing girl. So the thing is, Mori's works are very there's a lot of sexual exploration in there. But what's particularly interesting is that the way he dotes on Elise is actually pretty accurate to Mori as a uh, as a person. Not that he dotes on random little girls, that's creepy, but he did have a daughter and that was his only child. Um he had a daughter and he really really adored her. He loved her a lot and he spoiled her and basically like he was a dad. Like he he was really devoted to her. And so the way that Mori like is always asking Elise to like like let let me take a picture of you and you know let me buy you stuffed animals and stuff Proud like that. Proud dad moments. That's so cute. Yep, I didn't know that. Yep. <laughs> 
Because I thought I thought it was a little bit strange. I was watching it. And I'm like, I feel like there's a Lolita con, like a Lolita context in it from the actual Lolita book in the West of how there's like a hypersexualization of young girls and with a with an older male figure. But actually, knowing that it's literally a dad doting on his kid, but he's a mafia dude, kind of brings it into a funnier perspective. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's very cute. And his daughter in real life, Maury's daughter, is. No joke as well. She also became one of the famous literary authors of Japan, and she became famous for writing yaoi novels in Japanese. Oh no! <laughs> it all cycles back. It never ends. You know, some people even say that she is the mother of the modern yaoi genre. It started from her. So, you know, like she definitely inherited her father's extremely good writing abilities, if nothing else. If nothing else. All right, that's it. That's it for me. We got to give Isabel time. So, Isabel, you know, what are your two historical anime that you picked? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, for time's sake, we can just talk about one. Uh, I just like to highlight. Sayuki, uh, the series, a kind of old series. Oh, Sayuki! I read the manga, it's so good. I live, yeah, I actually only watched like the, I think the maybe the last anime series part that was released in 2017. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Sayuki Reload Blast. I was just, oh, it's so good. We got blown away by it because I hadn't read the manga. But then I, the fact that it's rooted in kind of more Chinese history and is based on the journey to the West, and the fact that it also has elements of Buddhism in it, I was totally invested in it, and I really like the characters as well. And what can you share with us the elements of Buddhism that has stuck out to you in regards to Sayuki? Because I, I don't know. I, I'm more aware of the journey to the West because that is my childhood. <laughs> that is, that is the childhood of every Chinese American child here. So, so I am like extremely aware of those parallels. But I, because I have very, very little knowledge of religion as a whole, you know, like, that's definitely what I'm really curious about to hear from. <laughs> yeah, definitely. The thing, like, the idea of joining to the rest, as you know, is um, kind of like having this Buddhist monk going to going and collecting Buddhist scriptures and traveling west, obviously, to go get them. And then the way that Sayuki kind of twists is that de- humans and demons kind of live in the world, and then they're and then um, all of a sudden, the demons start fighting the humans, and uh, these heroes, or rather, the um, the monk is going to uh, go west and try to, you know, as he teams up with these people, he's trying to go on this journey to west to stop these demons. So it's kind of like a typical plot, but I feel like the references that it draws upon, especially the priest himself, I think it's hilarious. Because Sanzo, he's basically like a renegade kind of priest who does everything a Buddhist monk is supposed to not do. <laughs> he, he smokes, he shoots a gun. It's totally antithetic. It's hilarious. Because, yeah, you're not supposed to smoke. You're not supposed to shoot a gun. And, like, in, he swears a lot of the time. Like, is yeah, he, he embodies is, is everything. Is he even supposed to, like, kill people? Because I think that's, like, he's pretty quick to pull that trigger from my understanding. <laughs> exactly. Like, he just gets ticked off at you know, the drop of a pin. So I just find it hilarious. Is that the serene <laughs> Buddhist? I will be enlightened by all of my, <laughs> all of my tribulations. <laughs> it's like, nah, I'm going to shoot them. <laughs> they piss me off. It's so great. But yeah, like it, you know, embodies Chinese culture and like folk, folk tales as well. And it's kind of a little bit of religious teaching, but like stuff like, like demons and stuff and having these different characters. I feel like it's interesting to see them all interact. And, I, you know, I didn't know that Goku was also based off uh, the uh, Monkey King. Yes, well. yes. <laughs> so, like, all of that coming together, I think, is, makes for a great series. And the fact that they all travel in a Jeep, I find that hilarious, too. <laughs> oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you're right, you're right. In that era. <laughs> and they always done. complain when the Jeep, like, breaks. Yeah. And they always find themselves in some sort of weird situation because the Jeep broke. <laughs> In the original story, they traveled on a white horse that was a dragon, so the dragon became a jeep instead. <laughs> <laughs> that poor dragon, guys. <laughs> yeah, they they like to constantly yell at the at the jeep too, mm-hmm. being like, "Why did you malfunction again?" Right? <laughs> because just because like- technically speaking, their transportation is a living being. So. <laughs> 
forgot about that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and now that you brought up the Buddhist element, uh, Isabel, it makes me think about the central part of Sai, uh, Goku, where, where, where all the characters are actually reincarnations. Yeah, that's right. So they have like a path to, um, reincarnation, which is what Buddhism and I believe Hinduism also believes that, uh, you know, you're in this cycle that you're going to be reborn into another character or another person, perhaps, or maybe even an animal or things like that. You'll be reborn into different worlds, uh, worlds or realms, really. So I really like that aspect of it because I, I feel like that is kind of like the core of Buddhism in general, that uh, technically you probably will have a next life, but depending on what you do in your life and karma and all things like that, it, it will guide you to where you will be in your next life. Yeah. yeah, the the prequels for this series, it's shown mostly in the manga, but they have actually multiple anime formats for it too, of their reincarnated lives is actually so depressing and so sad and explains a lot of how they end up in the circumstances that they are in the current story. And so it just makes me sob every time I have Aww. to go back to revisit it. <laughs> it's very tragic without spoiling a lot, because there's a lot of context that needs, uh, that really does tie into that Buddhist context for that. And I feel like they like, do a good job of not mentioning or kind of making it like a mystery, uh, like at the beginning or something, where yeah, the characters have yeah. a past with each other. They were, you know, connected to each other somehow, but you don't really know how or why. And then as they continue on their journey, it's uh, more like revealed like each step of the way. But yeah, I just wanted to highlight that. I feel like it's super fun. It's like a comedic take on Journey to the West and having these characters just having fun. Sometimes I feel like you can just watch it for fun. Um seeing the characters interact and do some crazy things fighting demons and stuff uh-huh yeah i was gonna say i love twists on stuff like that because journey to the west is just such a classic story and then they twisted it with the different characters and i i love it i love it so <laughs> sayuki's great i almost said sayongoku but that's a different story sayuki's great <laughs> okay. Okay, so I, I just because I think it's unfair if you don't get to talk about your second one, <laughs> Isabel. What was oh, the second okay. one you chose? <laughs> sure. Well, we were going to talk about. I I always talk about Gintama, so I just wanted to highlight Gintama's. Oh, <laughs> of course, of course. Okay, continue. Absolutely, <laughs> and it's totally fine. And in particular, obviously, it's the Shinsengumi because I feel like that is shown throughout Japanese anime, not only in Gintama but other shows as well. So, but Gintama was kind of like my first series that I was actually exposed to Shin Sengumi and characters like Ijikata or Kondo and Okita Sogo like I didn't know those characters before and like my idea of them is so rooted in that that like when I see other shows I'm confused you know that's actually why is Ijikata Ijikata isn't obsessed with peanut butter You know, my my experience is very different with with Shin, the Shinsengumi because I started out with the Hoki series and that was a mistake. <laughs> Excuse me, now you get to see all of them as hot in your mind, so that's not what I'm <laughs> Yeah, but it's like it was so unrealistic. <laughs> it was a visual novel. Okay, but I don't know how or why, but I mean, it, it is what it is, right? He uh, the reason why Hijikata keeps getting portrayed in these ultimate game slash ultimate anime series is because the real man is actually really beautiful like look up a picture. he's pretty he's pretty handsome in golden kamui there's a scene where they all take pictures together and the hijikata photo that's actually existing in real life does crop up of where he's wearing like western clothes um, because the photographer that had taken the picture of the Golden Kamui characters had also taken Hijikata's photo during the Bosutsu, during the, the Bakumatsu period. And so they show that photo and you're just like, oh yeah, this is an actual real photo. And you put it side by side to the actual real one in real life. And you're like, this man's a handsome I man. I know, he's actually good looking. Like he's a very he good is, yeah. looking person. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy that a handsome man like that could be like a warrior too. And just, I feel like so loved in probably Japanese history that they're, they just want to use him in multiple shows and anime and stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, this is a good uh, segue to my uh, to a question for you, Agnes, um, featuring okay. Agnes's history lessons again. Why is why is Japan so enamored with Hijikata? Because 
I obviously know the answer with that with Nobunaga. He is one of the first uh, samurais to with the idea of unifying Japan during a very, very contentious period. And he is a chaotic bisexual man. Like, what more do you want? So, um, especially in a country that is very upheld by standards and, you know, traditions. And he just kind of like, I mean, he obviously upholds them, but he also sort of throws them to the side at the same time. So, like, he is chaotic. So he's very enamoring in that regard. So what about Hijikata? Because Hijikata doesn't come off as like a chaotic man. So why is Japanese history and to to modern day still very enamored with him? That's actually a really good question because I did not dive so much into studying the Shinsengumi when I took my Japanese history class and when I was doing my own research. So I actually don't know the answer to your question. Dang it. <laughs> the only thing I can extrapolate, huh? Dang it. <laughs> the only thing I can extrapolate from that is the fact that Hijikata is so well beloved as a leader mm. but also has a much more withstanding history given how long he was able to last i see oh. okay yeah because his ending was trying to at the at the time of his death was trying to bring about the Ezo republic in hokkaido which is what the golden kamui presence um premise is based off of and so that is already very contentious because japan doesn't want to have another uh allying country another country right next to itself it rather wants to be a whole unified country to protect itself from you know other invaders like the western powers for instance and so having another country right next door that could very well call out on a lot of the atrocities and also wage war against them would be very troublesome. I see. Okay. Yeah, I just I just think Hijikata is just very well respected and uh, and also because Hijikata comes from like one of those provincial families, he rose up to becoming a very notable samurai and also being part of a very tumultuous area really brings a lot of spotlight on him rather than just kind of brushing him off as a uh, a person of, of history, just somebody who existed during that time. He was very prominent. And I think there's a lot of records to show that about his fascinating journey from being kind of not so well off and now becoming one of Japan's most beloved iconic leaders. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a slum. It's, it's, it's a partial. Okay. Yeah, it's a partial slum dog story. Yeah, oh. I think that's what shows in Gintama too, right? Yeah, that Hijikata is kind of like a, a slum dog. Right, he's not somebody who's like very famous or comes from a very noble family. Actually, yeah, that's correct. Like they all kind of like the Shinsengumi in the series actually just came from. They were kind of like. The way that they're portrayed is that they're kind of friends in in the past and they didn't really have anything they only like um came together at a dojo and that's how everything started so kind of like building up that friendship and relationship throughout the years is how they all came to be so yeah that i did forget about that but yeah they all have those types of you know histories that they're not from like like nobility or something like that something like that so it's just coming from that and then being like well respected you know military force is what it is so and becoming samurai as well because i feel like samurai also you know they have a lot of virtues and the code that uh, they refer to as well is very like loyal and also kind of like respected amongst everyone even the citizens like they know about it and you know it's really hard work so i think that's why also that they really respect maybe that time period and the, the people there and um, how they were fighting for their country, really. All right. Well, uh, this is our wrap-up, then, in that case of our anime that have historical elements in it that we really appreciated and enjoyed. And if you can't tell already, we're all very nerdy because um, we love our history <laughs> and we love discussing our history. But it wouldn't be a Girl Taku episode if we don't figure out what the heck happened to Agnes when she was away in France. So, Agnes, Woo! I'm calling you back on stage again. It's time for you to tell us, you know, what the heck happened because a guy ran into you on his bike and it was the perfect Sojo setup. And I already could already see the sparkles. So, you know, but you got embarrassed and you couldn't finish the story for us. So now you got to finish the story. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it was kind of awkward at the beginning, and I thought to myself, like, why is this French man suddenly courting me out of nowhere? Like, please let me go home to my fuss sweatshop, right? Now. <laughs> I just want to go to sleep. Um, but I couldn't say no. He was very persistent, and so he took he he took me around Paris, probably thinking I was like some some foreigner or something standing by the Louvre. So he took me to go see the Eiffel Tower at night, 
uh, driving or like just riding underneath it. Oh on his my bike. gosh, that's so romantic! <laughs> gorgeous. It was it was actually gorgeous. I was looking at it. There's like glittering lights. You see the lattices structure that makes up the Eiffel Tower, and you think to yourself like, "Wow, that's a lot of electricity they put into it." But it's very beautiful, regardless. And you're just sitting there, kind of in awe. And then he took a small detour through the uh, the gardens in. Um, near the Eiffel Tower and I thought to myself like oh my god is this like one of those doki doki moments in the shoujo and then he stopped he got off his bike and he told me to follow him and I started to follow him thinking like oh wow this is definitely going to be very doki doki and he started leading me down this flight of stairs behind a, uh, a garden bush and I was like where are we going suddenly didn't feel romantic anymore. And oh my god, you are in danger. You need to get out. <laughs> I did not know sh- You know, I don't know Paris that well to know how to navigate myself home. And at that point, we had already reached down. We were going down this flight of stairs that goes deep, deep underground. And he lit up. He He's a, I think he's a chain smoker, given to the fact that how a lot of French people in Paris like to smoke quite a bit. And so he lit uh, one of his lighters. And as he was Lifting it up into the room, I saw that where he had led me down was, uh, flanking my two sides are rows of skull bones, <gasps> of actual skulls. And I asked him very cautiously, because I know this area, I've heard about it before. And I asked him, are you taking me on a trip to the catacombs? Because, you know, we met in front of the Louvre. We went into underneath the par- the Eiffel Tower. And it feels like, you know, we're on this grand adventure. And the catacombs is a very, like, popular tourist spot in France. And then he turns around and gives me a very, very sinister smile. And then the light goes out. And that's why we're ended here today, because we're over an hour of our podcast. Jeez, oh, oh my gosh. gosh. <laughs> Please bring a taser with you next time. <laughs> I, you know, you, you know me, I don't bring a taser. I just use my martial skills to try to oh, fail right. me out of Isabel, the situation. Oh, right, we forgot Agnes is a badass who can punch right. people. So. I, I don't know if I'm a badass, but I will fight blood, tooth, and nail to get out. <laughs> Alright, well, I hope everyone enjoyed the cliffhanger uh, that Agnes left us on, all of us on, in regards to this story, or, you know, her adventures in France, and I hope everyone enjoyed our historical discussions. I hope everyone, I keep saying I hope, I'm so sorry, but I hope everyone (laughs) will be here with us next time. Bye, everyone! Bye! Bye Bye-bye!